I want you to look in the book of Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 9 for the sake of time tonight. John continues in another vision, in a series of visions. Here's the one we're focusing on tonight in Revelation 7 verse 9. He says, After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The deeper we go into this study and the more passages that we're walking through together in these six different worship scenes from the book of Revelation, the more I'm hoping that your minds are connecting from week to week some uh, foundational similarities in all of these passages. And this evening, there's so much to talk about that I've just prayed all day, just saying, Lord, just give me freedom to run wherever you want me to run tonight. Um, the sermon outline is the guardrails, but the Holy Spirit and the passion is the green light. And so we've got green lights and guardrails tonight, and I believe he's going to take us somewhere good. So go back up in the text with me to verse number 9. And let's just examine this worship scene. And the first thing I notice is that worship arises in this scene from a diversity of people. In the beginning of verse number 9, I find this very encouraging word. And remember, this hasn't happened yet. The vision has, but the actual occurrence hasn't. It is still future. And John says, after that last vision, he looked, and what did he behold? A great multitude that nobody could number. And I'm going to have to give you a secret that's going to be revealed by the end of this passage, but I want to tell you now so you can track with me as we go through this. This great multitude that John is describing that he sees in this caught up to the third heaven vision, this great multitude is a very unique group of people. These are the martyrs that give their lives for the testimony of Christ during the last three and a half years of what we know as the tribulation period. If you look back in chapter number 6 and verse number 9, they're described as those that, that gave their lives for the gospel. And it is a group of people that have gone through literally all of God's wrath breaking forth on planet earth as he brings justice 
to those that have hardened their hearts and rejected him. Yet these people were alive during the tribulation time, and because they have believed in Jesus Christ through the witness of 144,000 Hebrew witnesses, that's earlier in chapter number 7, 144,000 Jewish evangelists who have been propagating the gospel during the tribulation. These are some of the people that believed and received Jesus Christ in the midst of a horrific uh, circumstances on earth where God's fury is being poured out, where the Antichrist is punishing all Jews and all Christians. He is breathing out the final fumes of his slaughter against all things that glorify God. And so they have been uh, refused at this point the mark of the beast. They've said no, and the Bible teaches us that those that refuse the mark of the beast during the tribulation time, they can't do commerce. They can't buy food. They can't sell anything. They can't do business transactions. We also find out that during this time period, that because of the wrath of God being poured out on planet Earth, that the, the, the global waters have run afoul and water is in short supply. The sun is pouring out just vicious heat at a, at a rate that has never been precedented before. And so we're seeing all of this. And and these people are living in this misery on earth, and yet the only stabilizing factor in their life is the very fact that they have Jesus Christ as Lord, but they're going to pay for it, and they do pay for it with all of their lives. And so here they have passed into the tribulation. They have endured during tribulation. They have given their lives, and now they have exited the tribulation. And John sees some of them standing before the throne. And the good news, the encouraging word is this, that there were so many of them that it was impossible to tally the count. Now, my friends, I want you to think about it. There have been massive awakenings and revivals. You, you go back to Acts chapter 2, and we see the explosion of the church at, at the day of Pentecost. You see others, thousands being saved in the book of Acts. You also see, hear about awakenings and revivals that have happened. The Great Reformation, where God's glory was restored to a certain extent in Europe and then began to spread throughout the world. And we've had a couple of awakenings here. And so we, we see all of this great stuff, but I want to tell you, nobody, the earth has never seen the kind of just mass salvations and repentance that will occur as they do at the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And when John sees them standing before the throne, he says it's impossible to number them. You know, I want to say this. I've mentioned it before in this series. Sometimes it looks like the bad guys are winning. Sometimes it looks like the devil's got the upper hand. Sometimes it seems like sin will never be curbed or put down. Sometimes it seems like that morality and the rejection or immorality and the rejection of Jesus Christ and just the sin-cursed earth. Sometimes if we're not careful, we're not staying tethered to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it looks like that, 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 that we're on the losing side. We know theologically we're not, but sometimes we think, oh God, will there ever be an awakening on planet earth and yet we see in the worst season of human history god is still not done saving he's still not done redeeming when all of the fury of the father is being poured out on a rebellious planet when the antichrist is seeking to kill and steal and destroy where christianity is being temporarily on earth visibly exterminated and yet the back end of it is those very people who endured are now standing before the throne of god and there are so many of them it's impossible to count well, that same verse goes on and tells us a little bit about this throng. And this is a helpful reminder for all of us. It says they're from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. I don't know what you think about when you think about paradise or heaven or glory or the eternal state. 
But the one thing that I know that we're prone to because we're human beings, if we're not intentionally broadening our mind and, and just thinking biblically, if you're not careful when you close your eyes and you picture the inhabitants of heaven, you probably think they all look a little bit like you. I, I think if we're not careful, I mean, just seriously, just take a moment with me. Humor me uh, this evening. Close your eyes and picture the people in heaven welcoming you. Go ahead, do that. Take a moment. Now, let me, let me just go ahead, and I, I'm not politically correct, so if this offends you, uh, I forgive you. But here, let me just say, uh, it, it's highly likely that when white people close their eyes, they probably didn't think of a bunch of Asian people running up to them. Or Hispanic people didn't think of a bunch of black people walking up to them. Or black people didn't think of a bunch of um, uh, white people walking up to them. We typically picture heaven with, with people that we're most associated with down here. But I love the fact that the Bible never lets us get away with that. That the Bible comes in regularly and reminds us that the gospel is for anyone the old whosoever wills of the gospel, and that we realize that heaven is going to be populated by people of every race, every nation, every generation, every language that has ever walked on planet earth. And part of God's glory is that heaven won't be just one flavor. And that all of us coming together, and I do not believe that we will lose our outward identity. I believe we'll be glorified, but I do believe we'll be able to recognize. So my guess is that when I'm in heaven, I'm probably not going to have dark skin. I'm probably going to look like a really happy albino. That will probably be me in heaven because that's kind of the way I look down here. And so I don't think that all of that is going to disappear. And, and the beauty of it is, is all of that reflects the, the just multifaceted allure of the gospel that it crosses all of the lines that we establish in our flesh that keep us divided. And yet when we get to glory, that none of the, there will be no minority in heaven. There will be no majority in heaven. There will be a king and all of those that the king has redeemed by the power of his blood. And we will love each other. And there will be no awkwardness. Some of y'all are feeling awkward right now because I'm talking about race. Well, let's get over ourselves together and just recognize that God is doing that now. It's his desire now. That's a possibility right now. But whatever is lacking in that possibility, by the time we get to glory, every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. There's also a visual detail in verse number nine that I want to give you. It says that all of these people from every nation, all the tribes and the peoples and the languages... So many of them that couldn't be numbered. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Come on. There we go. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And the symbolism of the book of Revelation, this is pretty elementary, but some of y'all are new to the faith and new to the Bible. When we see white robes, and the Greek word there indicates a dazzling, almost blinding white robe. And it's a garment that's described as being from the shoulders all the way down to the tops of the feet. And so all of these people from the different cultures and the different languages, and remember, all of these people gave their lives during the tribulation. And it lets you know that the gospel during the worst half of the tribulation, the gospel is going to be still permeating lands. And that in every country, in every part of the globe, people are still going to be born again. They're still going to refuse to, to recant Jesus. They're going to pay with their lives. And all of these people have come there and they're now arrived in glory and they're given that white dazzling robe and that's a symbol of the righteousness of the saints 
It is what Jesus provides. It simply says, all of your stains, all of your marks, all of your blemishes, it's all been taken away. And so they're given this standing, this positional acceptance, this righteousness that comes from Jesus. And the Bible says that also in verse number nine, that they're waving the palm branches. And that, that's a beautiful thing. In many cultures throughout the world, palm branches are a sign or a symbol of rejoicing. And so they have gone through literally hell on earth as the Antichrist has come against them. And literally most of those have given their lives because of the fact that, that the Antichrist hated them for not worshiping his image. And so they were killed, they were martyred, they were executed. And yet they come through all of that and the back end of their suffering is that they are in an eternal state of righteous worship and rejoicing. Does that have any practical benefit for you and for me? I think it does. Because you and I aren't going through what they went through. You might have had a bad week, month, or decade, and I don't want to make light of that. But I'm going to tell you, we haven't gone through what they've gone through. And yet the, the back end of their testimony from earth to heaven is that one nanosecond in paradise, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the loss, it was well worth it because now from that point forward, they rejoice forevermore standing before the Lamb of God. So among this diversity of people, worship is arising. Verse number 10, worship is also heard from a declaring people. This is what they say. We saw what they were doing. We saw how they looked. This is what they say. These, these same people in verse number 10 are crying out. And they're doing it with a loud voice. And this is what they're crying out loudly. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, that sounds really Christianized, right? That's just stuff we say, stuff we sing. But let's go ahead and just put ourselves in, in, their, in, their, in their testimony. They're not just singing broadly or generically about salvation. They're talking about the very specific deliverance that they have received after going through such terrible torment and suffering. They're looking at him and they're saying, you rescued us. You saved us, oh, you glorious God on the throne. And you, the lamb, you are the one whose blood has brought us here. And so they're not thinking just generally. They're thinking very specifically. I think it's so important for all of us to recognize that it is very easy for us when we are in, you know, ensconced in all things Christian and we go to church a few times a week and we worship and we serve and we sing and we've got our own Christian music and we've got our own Christian movies and we've got our own Christian restaurant, Chick-fil-A. And, and we, we've, got, we've got all of this stuff that's just so Christianized. I'm glad, I'm grateful that we, we have some, some, uh, some harbors to sail into that are, that are accommodating. But I want you to recognize that, listen, we need to remember that it, it's not just big salvation out there. You need to stay in contact with the fact that you've been forgiven, that you were pursued, that his blood had to come full force against your sin and your guilt and your condemnation. And he came after you. And in a moment of contrite, broken faith, you just said yes to him. For me, I remember the day, I, August 4th, 1994, 112, uh, 3100 Sweetwater Road, apartment 112, kneeling down on a beer-stained patch of carpet where I had spent the last year just ruining my life. And I remember just saying to him, God, I, I've ruined my life, but that preacher said, you take it. I, I, if you want to save me, save me. If you want to kill me, kill me. But I'm done rebelling against you. Here's my life. 
And I know for a fact that in that moment, friends, that the power of Jesus Christ came and transformed my life, regenerated my soul, cleansed my stains away, and made me in a moment of time a new creation. And he took and stripped so much off of my life in that one moment. And so when I sing about salvation, you'll just have to pardon me sometimes. When I preach about salvation, you'll just have to forgive me because it's not a doctrine to me. It is an experience with a living God who came after a renegade and a rebel. You say, well, Jeff, what about me? I wasn't a drunk like you. Well, my friends, I'm going to tell you, it take this, took the same blood to wash you of your sins that it took me to have my sins washed away. And so it's got to remain fresh. It's got to remain like at the, at the forefront of our thinking. Otherwise, our gratitude is nothing but religious-sounding hyperbole. But when we stay fresh and connected with this great God and this awesome King, I promise you, We'll end up doing what they did here. There'll be times where we'll be crying out with a loud voice. One of the things that I've just been repeatedly stricken with as we've gone through these worship scenes is how frequently the worship and the praise and the testifying in the book of Revelation is described with this repeated word, loud, loud, loud. There's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and there's 21 usages of the word loud. You think God's trying to tell us something? And listen, I understand and I appreciate there are times for quiet, uh, just reflective, meditative, con contemplative uh, worship and thinking and quietness. I Thank God it's not an either or. But when you see a typical gathered worship setting, unless it was a solemn assembly in Scripture, it is usually enthusiastic, celebratory, and loud. Say, I can look out there and some of you aren't convinced. <laughs> Psalm 33.3. See, I knew you wouldn't be convinced, so I came armed and loaded. Here we go. Psalm 33.3. Sing a new song, the psalmist says. Play the strings skillfully, the psalmist says. And then he says, and shout loudly. And then Psalm 47.1, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Psalm 150, verse 5, praise him with loud, crashing cymbals. Now look what we've done in the American church, man, the church in the West. It's like the pinnacle of worship in the West and the pinnacle of what we might be tempted to think that God receives in certain circles and churches and denominations is that we, we move silently, we stay still, no animation, no motion, head bowed, and but then we, we say to each other, oh, but weren't our hearts stirred? Now listen, I'm not saying that you have to demonstrate in order to have a stirred heart, but I'm going to tell you this. If it's filled full enough and it's stirred, it's agitated in a good way by the Holy Spirit long enough, what is going on in the inside is going to have to come out. It's going to have to come out. And so one of the reasons I'm taking us through this series is because, I mean, we're just such a transitional church. We have people coming. We have some going from time to time. And our Sunday mornings are just animated and lively. Wednesday nights are a little more subdued. But listen, think about this with me. Because the, the, uh, an offended spirit, an offended spirit is unblessable. God can't bless a person with a perpetually offended spirit. And because of our ecclesiastical misinformation, 
And we've been trained that, that shouts and, and demonstrations and dancings and movings and loudness and, and, and thunderous drums and percussion and just animated, enthusiastic, loud, jubilant worship. If you're not careful, you'll say, well, that offends my denominational sensibilities. And, and you, can, you can actually be tempted to think it's wrong without just taking a moment to recognize, but it's actually biblical. It's actually commanded on a certain level. And so one of the things that I want us to do is I want, listen, if some people say, well, I'm just an introvert and I'm, I'm, you're an extrovert, that's fine. I'm not telling you you're not worshiping if you're not animated. I'm not telling you that. But what I am doing is counteracting the notion of those that are, did you lose me? Come on. Am I back up? Yeah? Yay. He laid hands on it. I saw him back there. The point being is this. Listen, I don't know what I was saying. What was I saying? Help me, Jesus. No, the, the, the thing that I'm trying to counteract is this. The attitude that says, just on impulse, that if somebody is stirred, somebody is loud, or somebody is animated, whether they're jumping up and down or laying flat on their back on the floor, I want you to know that you got to guard your heart in that religiously offended spirit that might be tempted to say, I doubt that's sincere. You see, my friends, when I go to the scriptures, this is what I look for. I want to know what's biblical. I also want to know what's unbiblical. But I have trained myself over the years to ask God to help me discern, Lord, we get in trouble with what's non-biblical. It's not biblical because there's nothing said about it in the Bible. It's not unbiblical because there's nothing prohibiting it in the Bible. It's non-biblical. It means the Bible doesn't address every single potential scenario. And so what the Lord does, that's the area of liberty. That's the area where we get to follow the Lord, and we do so recognizing that we're not an island unto ourselves. We are with other people. We don't want to be unnecessarily um, intrusive or distracting, but at the same time, we're worshiping him. And my goodness, friends, in the day that we're living in, is this not a season where proud, uh, not proud, with demonstrative and loud praise should be lifted up unbridled? I mean, if, if, there, if we can't do it in the church, then it's not getting done anywhere. And so we see them, and they weren't ashamed and they weren't embarrassed. Their salvation and deliverance meant so much to them, they couldn't do it politely. They couldn't do it quietly. They couldn't just assume, well, the Lord knows my heart. They, they wanted to make sure not only that the Lord knew their heart, but that he heard their voice. And so we go down into verses 11 and 12. Worship is also received from discerning angels. Look in verses 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I, I want to linger here just a moment. The Lord is really stretching me in, in this season, has been for about a year, but it's, I'm feeling it more intensely right now concerning the ministry of angels and the fact that, quite frankly, they're rarely spoken of in, in most churches. 
And so I, I, I'm walking through this over the last year, and I realize about the default position for most of us as believers is, is we know the angels are there somewhere. We assume they're doing something for God, but we really don't press into the Lord to say, Lord, how are we to interact with angels? We know, Lord, that you've given them to the church as ministering servants. They're, 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 they minister in power and fire, the seraphim, the cherubim, and then the unnumbered, uh, innumerable host of angels. And yet we know they're not just standing around watching. We see through Scripture that they, they're agents of warfare. They're the host of God, the army of God. We see them involved in intercession when Daniel was, was praying and he didn't see the answer manifested. And finally, the, the powerful angel breaks in and says, Daniel, your prayers have been warred over in the heavenlies. That the prince of Persia, it's a demonic entity, was, was, was stifling, smothering, and resisting your prayers. But we've come against them and now I want you to know you were heard on day one. But now, now here's the answer. So we see the activity of the angels, and this is amazing to me because what you see is, this is rare in Scripture, you see this tag team worship setting with the angelic and the human. You've got the human saying, salvation belongs unto the Lord, hallelujah, he's great, he's worthy, and then the angels, the first word out of the angel's mouth is amen. They're amening the worship of those tribulation martyrs, and then they're adding in their own, they're saying he's worthy. He's glorious. He's mighty. See, this is something I want to give us here tonight. Notice that the angels aren't worshiping God about his salvation. They're not testifying because they, they've never been saved. They've never fallen. These angels have been pure from the moment they were created. They've been loyal. They've been faithful. They've been holy from the moment they've been created. They don't understand the experience of redemption. As a matter of fact, the, the scriptures teach us that they actually long to look into these things. They, they are drawn to what it means because they've seen him with their angelic eyes. They know he's worthy of worship. But they know down here that the vast majority of us have never physically with the eyes seen the Lord, and yet they, 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 they are stunned and amazed that we worship him with zeal. We serve him with, with sacrificial hearts, and, and they say they haven't even seen him. Peter alluded to it. He said, whom having not seen you love. And friends, the angels come in and they say amen, but they don't have their own salvation testimony. So their praise is, is, is more just ascribing to God all of his inherent goodness. They're saying, we, we bless your name, O Lord, because you're glorious and you're wise. And we, we, we are thankful and we ascribe unto you honor. And we, we rejoice in your power and your might. And you are eternal. You are our God forever and ever. Amen. And so you've got these humans that have paid the ultimate price with their lives and faithfulness to the Lamb and to the Father. And you've got the angels saying, while they're worshiping, we want to worship too. And the angels, the angels get on their faces before the throne. You know, most of us don't have a grid for that. Every now and then somebody will say, Jeff, how can I pray for you? And I'll assume maybe somebody wants to, so I'm just going to give you this. Pray for me that I will have keen discernment about what the Father wants concerning angelic ministry in this region and specifically this church. We have had so many prophetic words over the last year spoken and, and not a few of them, several, have, have trafficked in this area of God wanting to release angels to come and assist us in the work that he's assigned to us here. And I just have to confess this to my own, maybe even to my own embarrassment, 
I don't know what to do. I don't know how to cooperate with the angelic realm. I hunger and I want. And so if you want to pray, pray for me and Dustin because this is what you hear about angels in churches. Well, we aren't supposed to worship them. Well, let's go ahead and just agree on that. We're not stupid. We don't want to worship angels. I prefer not to have God angry with me. I'd prefer not to be an idolater. I'd prefer not to, you know, act in a blasphemous way under the Lord. So we're not talking about worshiping angels. We're talking about receiving their ministry and in a certain way by faith, partnering with them to accomplish the will of the Father in this house. Do you remember when Chad Norris was here just a couple of weeks ago? He said that part of what the word the Father was giving him over this house is that there would be an unzipping from heaven and that angels would be released to come along and assist us. Now, please don't let that go out of one ear and out the other and say, ooh, that was cool. What does it mean is what we need to be asking. How do we steward that? And so these angels were there and they were cooperating and worshiping. I, I, I just love the thought that there's a place in existence where every ounce of focus and energy and testimony is rightfully directed at the Lamb of God. There's no competition. There's no distraction. There's no weariness. It's, 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 a, it's one of those rare places in Scripture where you're seeing Jesus get everything he deserves, everything that he has bought with his blood, and there is nothing coming against it. And so because we love him and we see that, we say, oh, our heart longs for that. Lord, we want to be there. Lord, keep us faithful. Help us to endure. God, never let us back away. And Father, get us to that place where we can be part of that undistracted, uninterrupted throng standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Don't you, don't you want to be there? I mean, aren't you ready? Is anybody else in this whole house tonight sick of their own weaknesses that cause us so easily to get off track or distracted, even for an hour or a day? And for some, it can happen for years. We get so caught up in the temporary, the good, the bad, the ugly, the gains, the losses, the, the, the ecstasies and the hurts. And we get so caught up in it and we have to fight and plow our way by faith just to remain centered in Jesus and say, Lord, I'm trying. Lord, I'm seeking you. Lord, I'm pressing in. Or there's going to come a day where in that sense of the word, we won't have to press in anymore because we'll be fully in. We'll, we'll be with him. We'll be in his presence. So we get down to the last couple of verses. Worship flows from delivered people. Look in verse number 13. They worship because of past faithfulness, the past faithfulness of God. This is back to the tribulation martyr. So we're bouncing between these now safe and secured saints and the angels, and now we're back on the saints. And it says, one of the elders addresses John. And the elder said to John, Hey, John, who do you think these are in their white robes? And where do you think they came from? And John says to the elder, sir, you tell me. I'm paraphrasing here. Sir, you know. So the elder says to John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, if you've got a Bible with you, just turn back one chapter. If you don't, I'm going to read these verses. One chapter to chapter number six and verse number nine. This is, this is how, well, let me just read it. 
When the fifth seal is opened, and the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, this is dealing with the judgment of God being poured out on earth. When the fifth seal was, was opened, chapter 6, verse 9, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given each of them a white robe and told to rest a little longer, rest a little longer, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Listen, I want you to go there in your mind. At the end of the age, two things are going to happen. We're going to condense it to the seven-year period commonly referred to as the tribulation. The first three and a half years, the Antichrist rises to power. There are the rumblings of what's to come, but he actually fosters a false sense and setup of peace on earth. He will be a political religious figure. There will be a one world kind of uh, coming together, both in government and religion. He will be the, eventually he will set himself up as the central figure to be worshipped by all people. The mark of the beast will be employed. The mark of the beast is in essence you pledging your loyalty, not you, but people pledging their loyalty to the Antichrist. Those who refuse that mark, the only people that are going to refuse it are the Christians. They're the only people that are going to refuse it. And because they refuse it, they will be cut off from culture and society. They will be hunted down, they will be persecuted, and they will be killed. The Bible tells us, I believe it's in Revelation chapter number 19, maybe chapter 20, that there will be mass beheadings. Now that ought to get your, your thought. Fifty years ago, beheadings would have seemed odd. It's not odd anymore. At the end of the age, one of the instruments of death will be the mass beheadings. And there's already a certain people group on planet Earth that are making themselves experts in that tactic. And that's going to be happening at the end of the age. And so these people are going to be slaughtered. And the vision that John got in chapter number 6 is they're crying out for justice to God. They're crying out, Lord, when will you avenge us? When will you avenge us? When will you avenge us? And the Father says... The number of those that will be saved through martyrdom, through their testimony of Jesus Christ, being so sure and secure that they're willing to die for it. When that number is complete, when that la and only God knows how many and who they will be, but when that last martyr is slaughtered, God will then bring that judgment and that vindication. But I love what he says to them. He says to them, rest a little while longer. He's saying, wait for it. Wait, trust me, rest. I know what I'm doing. We see all sorts of hellish activity on earth and our souls are grieved. We experience trials and tribulations of our own. They're not like this, but that doesn't mean that they're not intense and painful. And it's the same message he has for us. Lord, when will this end? When will the pain go away? Lord, am I going to have victory uh, now? Am I, am I going to experience deliverance and relief? And oftentimes, there is an element of waiting because so much of the life of faith, we're, we are above and we are victorious and we are more than conquerors. But that does not mean that all of it happens instantaneously. We are still being purified by living by faith. And so these tribulation martyrs are told to wait, and by the time you get to chapter number 7, 
the elder says, now, John, do you know who these people are? An innumerable throng. So many people killed and, and saved, but martyred at the back end of the tribulation that John can't count. And the, the elder says, John, let me tell you who they are. These are those who have purified their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They have been saved through the blood of the Lamb, and they've come through the great tribulation. It's very, very clear in the Greek language. It is the tribulation, the great one. So it's talking about the specific time that Jesus alluded to. And it is those three and a half years where the wrath of God is being poured out and the fury of Satan is being poured out. And the end of the age is right there. Friends, listen to me. In the midst of all the stupidity that dominates the airwaves and the media and the entertainment industry and a lot of the stuff that just permeates churches and all the, the untethered, unbiblical stuff that churches are founded on, I just want you to remember, there's, there's a massive, cosmic, ageless war going on between God and Satan, and Satan's time is coming to an end. And as it does, he's not giving up. He's getting more and more furious. And so that sobers us up. So when we go into the presence of the Lord, it's so much more than getting our kicks on on a Wednesday or a Sunday. We're sobered, we're stirred, we're, we're, we're struck in our hearts by this glorious one who has paid the price that you and I will never have to go through this stuff. But in the meantime, we do have an assignment to make this known and to tell the world around us it doesn't end on a, on a beautiful carnival for all of humanity where everybody's happy, healthy, and wise. Those apart from Jesus Christ are already under condemnation, and if they exist and continue in that condemnation, then they are going to experience the full wrath of God as he pours it out on planet Earth. It's not a popular message, by the way, and it never has been. We're not the first generation that said, ah, oh, that's kind of offensive. Well, listen, my friends, it, 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 it can be, it can offend, the message is offensive. We don't have to be. The message is offensive because it tells people, you can't make it on your own. You need him. And that, that just comes against the independent, independent self-assertive, I am my own captain of my destiny, comes so hard against that. And yet in the end, we see these people that endured and they have now entered into their inheritance. So they worship because of the past faithfulness of God. They went into the tribulation. They endured through the tribulation. They have come out of the tribulation. That's the testimony of redemption. My friend, whatever you're in right now, it may not be the most pleasant season of your life. I don't, I'm not even, I don't even care that it doesn't compare with what we're talking about tonight. I think this is an application. You went into wherever you are right now. You're enduring in the midst of it. You will come out of it. You're going to come out of it. That is what the, the faith in a redeemer tells us. And for most of you, it's not, you're not going to have to wait until you go to heaven to come out of it. You're going to come out of it before you exit the earth. So rest a little while. Just wait. Last thing. Well, two more things, if I have time. I don't. Here we go. We'll, we'll go quickly. They worship not only because of his past faithfulness, but they worship because of the present worthiness of God. So here they are in the present. It hasn't happened yet, but in this scene, it's where they are in the moment. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And so they have been delivered from their past 
And in that present moment, there they are. They're exactly where they want to be. I mean, it's probably not the most accurate phrase, but I'll use it. They're they're face-to-face with Jesus. They're there. They're before the throne, and the throne's not empty. And so there they are in perfect paradise with their creator, their king, their redeemer, who's about to be called their shepherd. And what you're going to see in the end of this, and I don't mind reassuring us and comforting us tonight. You know, every now and then, we just need to be reminded that it's okay. You know, every now and then, we just need to hear from the Lord. I know it's hard sometimes, but it's actually okay. Because, and, and to prove that to you, my child, let me tell you what the back of the story looks like, just in case you forgot. But in that moment, they're just saying, here we are, you're so faithful. You're so faithful. You're so good. We love to be in your presence. And now the last thought, they worship because of the future protection of God. Watch that. Past faithfulness, present worthiness, future protection. Verse 15, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't know how you can read that and not just say, oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you. We read that, and we're so familiar with it that I, I like the, the surface layer comfort of it. It helps me. I, just, I like reading it without overthinking it. But I also do want to dig down. I want to drill down just a little bit in this. All the things that this elder is testifying to John, those are his words there. He's saying, John, these people that you can't count, the ones in the white robes and the palm branches that are going to be in front of the throne day and night forever and ever, John, let me tell you what the Lord's going to do for them from this point forward. And it's everything that they suffered the loss of during the tribulation. Look at the verse with me again says he will shelter them with his presence. It says that they will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. These people would have been in stark deprivation during the back end of the tribulation. They couldn't drink because the waters were contaminated because the wrath of God was being poured out. The meteorite, wormwood, that strikes the seas and contaminates all of the global waters, the the rivers and and, and lakes turning to blood. I mean, we can't conceive of it. It sounds like science fiction or Hollywood, but it's going to happen. That the waters will not be drinkable, and the only ones that will have access to water are those that are part of the Antichrist system, and they weren't part of it. So some of them would have died of hunger. They couldn't buy food. They couldn't farm lands. They couldn't eat. And so their death would have been just simply starved out. Others of them would have died of thirst. And so the, the elder says and, and to John, hey, these that you see, they will never be hungry again. Hey, John, they will never be thirsty again. Then it says the sun and the scorching heat won't get them. Do you remember that part of the wrath of God that's poured out is that the sun is going to intensify in its heat. 
It's going to intensify greatly in its heat, and people are going to try to hide from the sun in caves during the Great Tribulation, and they're literally going to be burned up. And it says that some of the unbelievers, as they're dying under the massive radiation of the sun as it's intensified during the Tribulation, some of them in their dying words are going to be cursing God. They won't repent even when they're burning to death as a result of their sins under the sun. But these, some of them, listen, some of them will have died because of that same sun bearing down on earth. Look, at, look there's a principle here in the tribulation time. My friends, they're not, they're not in safety until they die. So they're going through the experience of it. One of the reasons, by the way, that I want to preach holiness and, and, and really be clear about the gospel is because I don't know when all of this is going to occur, but it, listen, it could occur in your lifetime. And there are lots of people that are church attenders who are not saved. And so when, when we're hitting this, it's not just theory out there somewhere that this stuff is going to break loose on earth. And when this younger generation, I love having in here, they were worshiping and lifting their hands and everything. I'm, I'm, I'm a dad. You know, I've, I've got two, one almost a teenager and one who's going to be exiting her teens in a couple of years. And I, I'm, I'm saying, I want them ready for this. I want them to be prepared for this. And so the scorching heat, but, but here the elder says to John, he says, they're never going to be burned up. They're never going. The Bible says that the Lord's going to canopy them with his presence. So they're going to be sheltered. They're going to be comforted. And it's an awesome thing. And then it says the lamb in the midst of the throne is going to be their shepherd. And what that simply tells me is this. Shepherds stay very close to the sheep. You know, a shepherd walks with his sheep. He knows how many there are. He's there. In, in, in the natural and earthly terms, the shepherd even smells like his sheep. Sheep know their own shepherd's voice. If you've got two shepherds in a field and the flocks are mingling, and the shepherds, it's time for those two friends to go home. One shepherd's going this way and one shepherd's going this way. They start walking. Each shepherd will call his sheep, and his sheep will go with him, and the other sheep will go with the other shepherd. They, well, they will not follow the voice of another. It's an awesome thought. That friends, that's why Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And, and so the shepherd's going to remain with us. Listen, it's not going to be like, you know, sometimes we can't get meetings with people that we really want to meet. You know, there's a lot of people in this world that I would love to meet that I wouldn't stand a chance of ever getting to meet. They're out there somewhere. The best I can do is catch a glimpse of them on TV or something like that and would love to sit down with certain people and just talk with them. And Jesus will be with us. You will speak face to face with Jesus Christ in glory. You. You will sit down and talk with him and hear from him. And, and, and it won't be just once. You're going to have all of the endless ages and you will get, he could sit down with you for a thousand years and never look at his watch because that preciousness of oneness with him is going to be fully manifested on the other side of this life. Friends, that is the end of our salvation. It's not about streets of gold. Frankly, if they were paved with asphalt, I wouldn't care. I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If Jesus wasn't in heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. I, I want to be wherever he is. That is the back end of your salvation, that this one who loved you, 
without reservation and without condition. The one who paid for your guilt and condemnation to be removed from you. The one who continues to walk with you even as we stumble and as we struggle and as we falter at times. He, he, his basic message is this, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm the same yesterday, today, and evermore, and I will always be with you. That, friends, is what should motivate our hearts in worship. The blessings are great, but the blessings are nothing compared to Him Himself.